It's April 4th, 2008, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame, episode 50. That's right, I've been here for two years and now 50 episodes. It's, it's really hard to believe. When I started this thing, you know, I knew that it would be successful, but uh, I don't think I really had in mind that I'd still be around here two years later still still doing it. I think I had hopes that I would be, but uh, I'm really pleased that, you know, where I'm at with the show, and I'm especially pleased all the great photographers that I've had a chance to meet and interview over the course of the last 50 episodes. And when it came down to episode 50, I really wanted the episode to be a little special. And uh, over the last two years, I've been asking people to make recommendations of photographers for me to interview. And I've gotten, you know, emails and postings on the blog. And the name that has come up more often than any other photographer thus far has been today's guest, Freeman Patterson. And Freeman Patterson is may not be a photographer that you may you may know, but among photographic circles, I think he's often considered a, a photographer's photographer. He brings to, to the craft of photography a real wonderful sense of what photography can be beyond just making a photograph. Using the camera and using the whole process of image making to, to explore the world around you, to see how you're connected with the world that you're photographing. And I think you'll get a lot of uh, uh, what I'm t trying to get across in this short intro uh, when you listen to the interview. And if you haven't checked out Freeman's books, I really recommend that you do so. He has some wonderful books out there, and as well as having great photographs, they provide great insight into why many of us want to make pictures. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Freeman Patterson. All right, Mr. Patterson, thank you so much for joining us on The Candid Frame. It's, it's a real honor and a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Well, I want to start off with, with, with your beginnings as, as a photographer. And reading um, your bio, I, I see that you were um, not actually studying photography uh, at the time that you had discovered, us, discovered it. Uh, you're getting a, a Master of Divinity degree from a Union uh, Theological Seminary at Columbia University. How did that segue into a, a career in photography? Well, I'd actually st I'd, I'd, uh, spent a couple of years earlier, I'd, I'd been to Europe. And like everyone who goes to Europe for the first time, I got a camera to take with me. And I realized very quickly that I had an instrument that I enjoyed working with. And because it allowed me, in a sense, to uh, uh, focus my seeing, and I, I was a very visually oriented person. Anyway, when I graduated from university and then went on to Columbia, um, the reason I, in effect, was studying uh, divinity was because I had done my undergraduate work in philosophy with a minor in English and biology, and um, I won a scholarship uh, that was it's called a Rockefeller Fellowship, uh, and they're only open to people who uh, um, are not considering the parish ministry but would be willing to take a look at it if they won one of these fellowships. 
Well, I took a look at it, and I decided that it wasn't for me. But I had uh, an incredibly good three years at, at the seminary, and it was, uh, it was very high-powered academically, and it was one of the finest community experiences of my life. And while I was there, I decided to uh, switch from uh, philosophy of religion as my major into uh, what was an aspect of practical theology. And because I continued studying privately photography, and uh, I did my Master of Divinity thesis on still photography as the medium of religious expression. Can you explain what what you uh, what you meant by that? Well, uh, you can look at you have to look at both content and style, which uh, or approach, which photographers are all the time looking at anyway. And uh, to me, uh, uh, well, let me give you what how I would define religion. Religion uh, is probably for me best expressed in the words of. Paul Tillich, who was a great theologian of the last century, and he defined religious concern as ultimate concern about ultimate things. In other words, uh, to be ultimately concerned or deeply concerned about questions of meaning. And um, so it seems to me that uh, a religious person is always uh, connected with questions of meaning or is concerned about them. And I decided that I would use photography to approach these. Now, I should just back up a little bit and say that uh, uh, religion, the word religion, involves dogma or suggests, you know, this particular faith has this particular set of beliefs and another one has another set. I'm really much happier with the sense, with the word spiritual or spirituality. And uh, for me, photography, uh, however, was an opportunity to take uh, religious symbols, known religious symbols, for example, in the Christian religion, the cross is a religious symbol, um, but merely to document them, that's simply to take uh, religious symbols and document them, and they, but then what about approach? And and for me, you can photograph religious objects in a very secular way. In other words, with no just documentary style, nothing particular. Or you can do them in such a way as to bring out the sense of meaning which that symbol has. And I remember one photograph I found, this was many years ago now, uh, it was of a crucifix, and the photographer had photographed from the side and had focused on the nail in one hand of Christ. And so you could see the figure sort of out of focus hanging behind, but the focus on the nail in that one hand just brought out the agony and the suffering in a remarkable way. Mm. So I realized that it was not just a document, but it really raised questions of meaning. One of the things that photography is for me is, is I sometimes describe it in terms of, of spirituality and, and, and meditation in that, that photography can really make you present in the moment 
when you're not really fixated on the future so much in in the past and i think in some of the things i've i've heard you uh say and and and, and write that that's that's one of the ways that you use f- photography particularly that of nature is is to use it as a device to become present and aware of the very things around you well you you as far as i'm concerned you have put your finger right on one of the things that's most important for me uh, for example, today, even though when we're, uh, I was out walking, it's the end of winter here right now, uh, and I was walking in through this very large boggy area in the forest, and it was remarkably beautiful. And uh, I, it's a, an area that I go to in all of the seasons of the year. And I usually, although I didn't today, I usually take a camera with me because I feel such a compelling attachment to the place that I often simply, for me, I I don't need the camera, but to have the camera and literally to choose a portion of that bog or some area in it and say, and to make a photograph, it's to me acknowledging its presence and it's giving me what it has and I'm responding and so there's this wonderful two-way relationship going on and uh, I, I always think of the photograph a photograph well of a camera always looking both ways and it's revealing both the subject matter and the person who's making the picture there's a there's a real big difference between looking and and seeing and that's something you touch on a lot particularly when you when you talk about um, photographs are everywhere, and they are not just at a at a fixed destination that a person has to arrive at to make to make a photograph, oh. and that really just speaks to the whole idea of being able to see as opposed to just looking. Well, I, you know, I I think we there's no doubt about it that that everybody tends to put labels on things that they're familiar with around your home and around your places, a place of work. You say, oh, that's a chair, that's a stove, that's so-and-so. And then we stop looking at it because we have identified its function. And uh, it becomes extremely important to realize that, to look beyond the labels and to see everything as, as I say, pure design to see the lo- the lines, to see the shapes, to see the textures, um, which make up the configuration of these things. And, and then we begin to not merely look at them, but we begin to see them. And, you know, every place in the world is virtually every place in the world is local to somebody. So um, when people go looking for pictures, they often go away from where they live and what they're looking for is something new, uh, which it's the newness, I think, that they're attracted to in many cases, and not the seeing of something that actually is very familiar to them, as long as they just look at the labels. For example, recently, I've been doing a lot of photography uh, right in my house, uh, and it's just of a some old wine glasses, a couple of plain wine glasses filled with water, and uh, uh, a plastic glass pitcher and a paperweight. And I'm just moving in with uh, a long lens with some close-up uh, portrait lenses on the end of it. And 
I mean, no one would ever know by looking at any of the images what the subject matter is because I'm I'm lost in the galaxies. And the the breakup of the highlights in the wine glass and in the in the and in the the plastic picture are are really you know it really just reminds me almost of the Milky Way. Yeah, it's amazing. I think a lot of people would be amazed at the idea that so many of your images, particularly that have ended up in your books, have largely been made at at home or in or in your garden, basically in your immediate surroundings that they weren't. Well, made I, you know, I, I think I would say quite safely that although I've had the great privilege of having traveled very widely for a very long time, that three quarters of all of the photographs that I've made have been within one kilometer of my own home. Wow. Tell me about this idea of waking up to to the things around you. I think for for many people, it, it's it's a real challenge to get to that to get to that point. You teach a lot and you work with a lot with 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 students of varying degrees of experience. But how how can you how do you help guide people to be able to wake up in that way to be able to see what's right in front of their eyes and and help them to see and see it in a completely different way. Well, usually when um, well when I'm teaching, there uh, the the class is usually 15 people. This is like a week long workshop, and there are three field instructors in which I'm one. So on one morning I'll take five of the participants. The next morning I'll take five more, and then the remaining five I'll take on the third morning. Now basically what I do with them is uh, is to, we go outside anywhere. And I'll say to them, uh, give me a number between 1 and 50, and someone will say 33. And then I'll say, okay, which direction will, do I go left, right, or straight ahead? And some will say straight ahead. So I walk 33 steps straight ahead, put the tripod down, and say, okay, everyone join me. And I just say, have an 80 or 100 to 300 mil lens on the camera. And I'll say to them, now look. If I were here all alone, I would not move the tripod until I'd shot 30 photographs without moving it, simply moving the camera around on top of the tripod and beginning to see from this spot. But since I want each of you to take a look, I'll just do 10. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll quickly, one after the other, get 10, not masterpieces, but 10 good, competent compositions, and each person in turn will step up and, you know, if they have a question, they'll ask about it or so on. But I'm saying, take the labels off. It's not a tree. Look at the picture. It's, it's a triangle because I've chopped the top off the tree or the bottom off the tree, whatever, and then on either side is forest background. The tree is a light green. The two sides are a darker green. It's a three-shaped picture. And people all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, it's actually very simple. And I said, extremely simple, because it's extremely unusual, I found, to, to look at anything, no matter how complex it may be at first glance, and not to be able to reduce it to six or fewer shapes, usually one to three. How does how does that whole idea, this idea of looking 
at things beyond their label, beyond their, you know, assigned role in, in the world, sort of influence the way you you live your life because the way we see things and the way we we label things is so much of a part of our culture and the way we identify ourselves and identify others how does this this ability to really look at it at a much deeper level change the way you you live in you live your life well i suppose it helps me to simplify uh, let me, I think there is are great analogies to be made, or let's just say this, a real analogy to be made between the design of one's life and the design of one's images. In other words, uh, uh, for example, uh, I will often, I'm going to make a comparison, first of all, between design of language and design of pictures. What I teach is not really photography. What I teach is two-dimensional visual design. And I usually start out by talking about, I say everyone knows a great deal about design because everyone can, can speak at least one language with some fluency. And many people can speak several languages. And a language is knowing the building blocks, being able to speak or write well is knowing the building blocks of the language, the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives, the adverbs. And it's being able to arrange them in different ways within the context, say, of a sentence. And if you change the arrangement of the same parts of speech or building blocks, you change the meaning. Now, it's exactly the same thing with, with visual design, except instead of having nouns and verbs, you have lines and shapes. Instead of having adjectives and adverbs, you have textures and perspective. And how you place these things within a picture will give a certain impression or meaning. And if you rearrange them by a change of camera position or whatever, you will also change the impression or meaning of the picture that you make. And all of a sudden, it begins to become very clear to people. Now, to make the analogy with life, after I've talked about the building blocks of visual design, I talk about methods or principles for arrangement, and I talk about such things as balance and rhythm and so on. But I point out that in picture design, as in our lives, uh, we should probably think of a, of a long line like a continuum, and on one end is perfect order, and on the other end is chaos. And rarely in our lives do we want things to be perfectly ordered because then nothing would ever move, it would be total boredom. And on the other end, we don't want complete chaos because, well, we can't function that way either. So we tend to live in what really somewhere in the creative middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes our circumstances call for more organization or order in our life, and sometimes for much more randomness. And it's a judgment call. We're all the time making judgments about how we live. And it's exactly the same thing with picture design. Some subject matter and sometimes how we feel about it will lead us to say, okay, I want a composition that's more orderly. And so we employ balance. We employ a uh, fairly uh, rhythmic uh, structure and so on. Another composition, we want more randomness, so the thing has imbalance, it has arrhythmic qualities and so on. 
so the choice is up to us. And, and I think that in our lives, we make these choices every day, in fact, every hour. Uh, and we have to make virtually the same choices with making photographs or any, uh, any pictorial image. Yeah. One of the interesting things I find when, when I'm teaching is, is particularly when I, when I teach kids, is this whole idea that innately they, they, can, they can see, they're able to pick out little details in the world around them that make interesting photographs. But it's, it's you know, developing sort of their ability to trust that initial instinct you know, to, to make those images because they have doubts because they may not have a bunch of technical knowledge in terms of the camera or maybe don't have a lot of experience behind the camera. And, you know, and I think for even uh, people who have been shooting for a while, there's always sort of something that's always sort of hampering their ability to really kind of trust that, you know, innate part of them that sort of recognizes something. Yeah, but you know, I think that's our ego getting in the way, isn't it? I mean, uh, in the sense that, that um, you know, it should be fun, especially on a workshop. And I, quite frankly, I just say this often on the very first morning of a workshop, that everyone who's here has full permission to fall flat on his or her face. There is nothing wrong with failure as long as you've tried. And and we'd far rather, you know, students go out and really give a whirl at something and exceed the boundaries and do things that they just never dared to do. And if they don't work, we'll try them again. And we'll help them, you know, with suggestions, having seen what they've done, make suggestions that will help them master whatever they've set out to do. And And I'd love to see that kind of freedom. But I think, you know, our culture boxes us in and we, we get all of these restrictions on us and a lot of people, for example, come on workshops that come from very busy professional lives um, and they can't just in a day turn their sort of more restrictive professional lives off and allow themselves the freedom just to be, which is really, you know, what in my view a workshop should be about. Yeah, it's- uh, it can be real difficult to get into a mindset where you're so goal-oriented, you know, yeah. where you're always having to meet some sort of deadline and have to meet some sort of destination and then just start playing. That's right, and that's what it is. It's play. You hit the, it's a key word. I think, you know, play <laughs> Play is probably our, our greatest educational asset. <laughs> yeah. When... Um, when you're um, out there shooting, um, and especially um, during times when it seems like, like you, you, I've seen you mention about springtime is one of your favorite times to, to go Fair photograph, mm-hmm. but that winter sometimes just because it's further stark doesn't provide um, uh, um, what you're kind of looking for, what you have an affinity for for photographing. How, how do you, you know, sort of orient yourself to go to be open to, to to settings even when you are thinking that there isn't isn't an image there. How do you open yourself up to that? You mean in the winter? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the winter, this especially this last winter here, was very rough. It's not that I dislike it visually, but it's simply that, I mean, with, when the snow is, you know, incredibly deep and you can't walk. 
and and you you're and the only place you can go, like I have a driveway which is like two thirds of a kilometer long, and if there are great high banks on either side of it, and if you climb up and clam, clam, clamber over a bank, um, you're going to have to have snowshoes or you're going to have to have skis on, which is fine if you live in the city and you only get out for a weekend holiday, but when you live in the country and have to contend with this just to do all the most fundamental jobs, it's uh, it's very, very enervating. And also, uh, often it's extremely cold, the wind is high, and, and you just are sort of driven back inside so that um, in situations like that, I, I just get cabin fever. And that's, in a way, why I, I take uh, such relief and joy, actually, in simply photographing things inside the house because it's so unpleasant to be outside a great deal of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, I mean, there are days which, you know, are quite are warm enough or the snow is hard enough or whatever that you that you can spend time photographing and, and things can be incredibly beautiful. Uh, there's no question about it, um, but uh, you know, if there's winter, this winter here we've had n- no break for four months, just deep snow for four months, and and that gets hard to take. And there are parts of Canada which have had it a lot longer than that. Uh-huh. You know, you you've had an opportunity to teach you know hundreds, if not thousands, of people over the years, yeah. and um, and. Uh, you're probably one of the people whose name comes up most often when people have recommended people. Uh, I've gotten emails from people asking me to interview people. I think your name has come up more so than any, any anyone else, largely as a result because you've inspired so many people and helped them, you know, in in their ability to see and, and make images. But what has it done for you in terms of, you know, your teaching of, of photography, your teach your way of teaching, not only to your work but your your life. I'm sorry, it's not, I'm sorry, just sort of repeat that for me. I was just wondering, all your years of teaching photography, you've inspired other people yes. you know, so much, but I was just wondering how how your your own teaching has impacted your work and, and the way you live. Well, um, it's, you know, teaching is a wonderful thing because as my teaching partner and I both say, uh, you know, we often feel that we should be paying the students <laughs> uh, because what happens is you set out to explain something in, in simple ways. I don't mean simplistic ways, but in, in ways that are relevant to people. And, and you know, whether the person is a beginner or a highly experienced advanced photographer is really doesn't make any difference to me. They're both both persons have come to say a workshop because they want to improve the quality of their lives in one way or another and they're using the medium of photography to to do this and so if you if you simply try to meet them where they are um, the, the questions which we get asked I mean it's amazing the, the even questions which I've heard a thousand times, a beginning photographer will ask it in some new way, 
with some little twist, you'll think, you know, I never thought of it that way before. Or they'll have some life experience that uh, perhaps it's a, a very sad experience or a very an extremely joyful and happy experience that that just brings to some aspect of of design uh, when they they describe an experience that they've had in terms of uh, something they've looked at and you think wow you know that subject matter has become such an important symbol for them and one of the things i think that uh we soon realize and our students soon realize is that everything we look at has the capacity to function as a symbol for us and and to stand for some emotion or some very deep idea and it's not just what it appears the label appears to be but it 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 stands for other things for example uh i'll give you an idea one day well, this is about 15 years ago i was standing one december morning looking out my kitchen window i was washing some dishes and and the the field the grass be, was very brown and uh, it had been all pressed down and it was all sort of like threads together and then it had snowed a little bit and there was like frosting sugar all over it and it was a cloudy bright morning and uh, i could see the little tiny black spots of shadow all through the grass and the snow and i went out and stood on my deck with I took my camera and a wide angle lens and i got extremely turned on by by this weave or tapestry and I started making photographs and I did this for about half an hour I mean for most people for the average person this was the most boring subject matter in the world but I just stood there and I avoided any rock or any root or anything that would function as a shape or a line and I just did sort of wide-angle shots of various sections of the weave or tapestry of the field and after about half an hour, an hour, I realized that I was higher than a kite, that I was really euphoric. And I had to ask myself, I realized that the subject matter had symbolic value for me, that this boring subject matter to most people was incredibly uh, important to me. And so I started just thinking, okay, why, why, what, what's it saying? And you know how sometimes when we think of things, we'll get the right answer. Mm -hmm. And we'll go right on by it. And then a moment later we'll say, oh, God, what was that I just said? Well, that morning I said to myself at one point, you know, this field kind of looks like my life at this point. And I went right on by, and then a moment later I said, but it does. Uh, because I looked at all of these threads of grass, a mid-tone brown, with highlights of white pottery snow over everything and little black tiny dots all through it and I said but that is like my life at this point I'm old enough now I've had all kinds of experiences good ones horrible ones indifferent ones and I've had the good fortune to travel all around the world and have friends in many countries and I said my life if it's going to be my life at this point really is a weave it's a tapestry and and what happens, you know, any artist, 
in many any medium or many artists in various media and and most good psychologists would will say that our unconscious self is always two to five years out in front of our conscious self and and we're photographing or we're dancing or we're playing music in a way that we and doing things with it that we don't realize consciously and that morning I became aware of something that when I was going back through my files, I found I'd really got into about three years earlier. Mm. That I was saving, I was making pictures of textures and I was saving them, but for a while just forgetting them. And then one morning it really came through for me. Mm. Now I guess what happens is that I've seen this kind of thing happen with a lot of different, uh, I hate to call people who come on workshops students, I like to call them participants. And uh, but I, I see these participants, you know, going out and having an, uh, an aha experience when something happens to them because they've let the sort of organized world of professional existence drop away and they've entered the real world. The real world is not the everyday world so much as it is the world that they discover when they just give themselves over to to being yeah and you really sp and and you really speak speak the, the truth when you say when you use that word discover because that's you you talk you know what you're talking about is the fact that photography is not about it's not about the camera it's not about the print in in some ways it's not even about the picture it's about the opportunity it creates for discovery and self-discovery by being just in the moment sure you know I think just about the least important question that that uh, you can ask a photographer or one photographer can ask another is whether or not she or he is shooting film or digital I think it's just absolutely irrelevant uh, the most important question I think that we can ask ourselves as photographers is why am I photographing what I'm photographing and why am I photographing it the way that I am? You know, what is the subject matter saying to me? Why am I attracted by this subject matter? And then why am I photographing it in these particular ways? Because what it happens is it gives us some insight into ourselves. And, and the fact that, you know, uh, if I were a painter, someone instead of a photographer one painter might be doing it with watercolors one might be doing it with acrylics one might be doing it with oils and uh, all those are good media and and I think you know whether it's film or digital I couldn't care less it's irrelevant to me mm. well the last question I ask of uh, each of my guests on the show is that I ask them to recommend another photographer who they would like to suggest to our listeners to go explore, either by visiting their website or picking up their a book that they may have out there or going to an exhibition. So who would that be for you and why? Well, <laughs> that's um, it's kind of a difficult question because it, at time to time it has changed but there are certain photographers look first of all I don't just as one painter is not well for example I think Shinzo Maeda the Japanese photographer M-A-E-D-A -E was his work is absolutely beautiful he's dead now 
but he did some of the finest large camera nature work that I've ever seen. Um, and then, of course, there there were people who, I mean, but he would never do work like, for example, Cartier-Bresson, never. Uh, and uh, so I, it's. I almost have to answer you by saying I can give you 25 photographers, <laughs> <laughs> and and they're all wonderful and they've all contributed, you know, to me. But I maybe what I can also say is that I think it's really important that photographers think of themselves as being uh, at their finest. Artist, just as a painter, is at his or her finest becomes an artist or a pianist or whatever. Uh, I, I don't think, I mean, we may be an artist in our finest moments, but then the other times we're craft people trying to, you know, learn and, and the technical aspects and things. But I think it's important that we use uh, or expose ourselves to all of the visual media, to, to painting, for example. Um, and uh, I think modern dance, contemporary dance, is one of the most exciting things visually that you can see. And uh, so it's, for me, I would say it's not just photographers, but it's the whole realm of the visual arts and the performing arts, too, that's, uh, that's uh, can inform what we do and inform who we are. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed having a chance to, to finally talk to you. It's it was well, a pleasure. I appreciate your your call very much. Thank you. Well, thank you as always for joining me for another episode of the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Until next time, this is Ivaria Nexparella, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.